Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, and I am pleased to welcome my dear friend, Dr. Robert Smith, Jr. to the studio today. Thank you, sir. Dr. Smith holds the Charles T. Carter Baptist Chair of Divinity here at Beeson. He teaches preaching most famously. He's one of the best-known preachers in the country today. He's also one of the most beloved professors in the history of Beeson Divinity School. He has a new book out, and we want to tell you all about it. But before we do, let me welcome Dr. Smith to the program. Thank you, Dean Sweeney. My friend, thank you for joining us. Uh, remind our listeners before we start, would you, how did the Lord save you from your sin and call you into pastoral and preaching ministry? The Lord saved me by His grace. When I was seven years of age, I responded affirmatively to the gospel. And uh, for the rest of my life now, for some 67 years, I'm trying to comprehend what he did then in terms of doctrine and teaching. It's so marvelous, it's so wonderful. And uh, so I'm trying to uh, unpack as best as I can what it means to be justified, sanctified, and one day what it will mean to be glorified. Mm, that's wonderful. All right, Dr. Smith, uh, we want to talk about a book that some of our listeners who are friends of yours, friends of the school, Beeson alumni, have hoped would be coming for a long time now uh, and has finally arrived. It is called Exalting Jesus in Joshua, and it's part of the Christ-Centered Preaching Exposition Commentary Series. That's a hard <laughs> series name to say, but it sounds like a really important one. Before we get into the book itself and how to preach the book of Joshua, can you tell us just a little bit about this series, Christ-Centered Preaching Exposition Commentary Series? Well, the, uh, the editors are David Platt, Danny Aiken, and Tony Merida, all three have served as pastors. All three of them believe in Christ-centered preaching and preaching a whole counsel of God. It's dedicated to um, persons who were Christ-centered preachers, biblical preachers, in the persons of Adrian Rogers and John Piper. And uh, they are worthy recipients uh, of it. So it attempts to do that. Uh, it sees Christ as the centerpiece of the Bible, uh, that Jesus himself even said that the things that were written in the Old Testament was, were written concerning himself. So he says in Luke 24, verse 27, uh, Luke says that Christ on his journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a seven-mile trip, expounded unto Cleophas and his anonymous disciples, the things concerning himself. So the assumption that we take into looking at all the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, is that Christ is affirming the fact that whatever was written about him was written uh, in order that he might be revealed as the coming Messiah who was promised by God, who came to save the world. Mm. Well, I tell you, you talk about Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. 
My heart burns within me just thinking about it. I wish I could have been there listening to Jesus himself interpret the scriptures in relation to his coming and exactly. his ministry. Exactly. All right. So, Dr. Smith, uh, how did the opportunity come about for you to contribute to this fine series? Dr. Danny Aiken, who served as the Dean of Theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary when I um, uh, was there, both as a student and as a professor, uh, invited me. He called me one day and asked me to be a part of the series. And uh, I thought about it. I prayed about it. And later on, I told him that uh, that I would. So it was it was by a human invitation, but by really divine inspiration. And, uh, and that's uh, that invitation has served to and, and he gave me the privilege of selecting the book to write on it. I told him Joshua. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask you about. Did he know how much you love Joshua or is that just one of those providential things? Providential. Huh. And 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 when he, it was the book that was available. Huh. You know, I'm not saying that I was the last choice, but I'm I think as I recall, other books were committed. This was the only uncommitted one. So I've heard you talk about this and have read you writing about this, but tell our listeners, why is the book of Joshua such an important book of the Bible to you? It is because I see Joshua, the book of Joshua, as a barometer, a measuring um, book, a canonical book, canon measure uh, for ascertaining uh, Christological attributes, uh, the person of Christ uh, in the book. I, I think the book of Joshua is a m microcosm of the macrocosmic um, picture of Jesus Christ and gives those Christological themes like, in, well, I'll talk about those perhaps as we go along, but as inheritance and uh, pneumatology, all kinds of doctrine right there uh, that is, that are at least in seed form uh, that will be developed into full fruit uh, throughout the rest of the Bible, particularly the New Testament. Huh. All right. So help our listeners, but particularly the ones who didn't get to go to seminary yeah. and they're not preachers themselves. And they think, well, I love the book of Joshua too. I love reading the Old Testament. I wish more preachers would preach sermons from the Old Testament. But when I think about the book of Joshua, I don't think about it in the same way. I think about the Gospels that are all about Jesus. So what does it mean to say the book of Joshua itself is lifting up Jesus, is pointing people to Jesus? The book of Joshua for me is a hymn book. It's about him. Um, Jesus said it's about him. I wonder if I really believe that on the Emmaus Road, <laughs> Jesus probably quotes from the book of Joshua. I mean, the name Joshua, his original name was Hosea, and Moses renamed him Joshua, which really means Yahweh is salvation. The name Jesus in Matthew one twenty one, they shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin, synonymously. I think the book of Joshua speaks about Jesus metaphorically, illustratively, analogically, by necessity, and typologically. Let me give an example, for instance, chapter 24 of the book of Joshua. You have three significant deaths. Number one, you have Joshua, who lives to be 110 years of age. 
Joshua is a prophetic type. By that I mean the book of Joshua is the first book in the former prophet's spokesperson. In that chapter, chapter 24, Eliezer is the high priest. He dies. And in that chapter, there is the death of Joseph, who is a kingly-like person. He's vice or co-regent in Egypt. So you have prophet Joshua, priest Eliezer, King Joseph. The theocratic offices of Jesus. Now, he is prophet not because he comes to bring the word. He is the word. He's the only one who can say amen before he says anything. Everyone else has to say something and then say amen. Not because he is the, the amen. He is the word. He's not only prophet, he's priest. He doesn't bring an offering. He is the offering. John the Baptist says in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And as king, he is not simply a king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he cannot be nominated. He cannot be impeached. He cannot be elected. He precedes himself. He continues to be king so that every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess. That excites me. Just that one chapter, at least metaphorically and typologically, is pointing to Jesus Christ in something that seems insignificant as the death of these three persons. That is so wonderful. So why do you think, Dr. Smith, fewer and fewer preachers these days feel confident preaching from the Old Testament? You know... um, I remember last year, I believe it was, you preached in chapel from the book of Joshua on Have You Been to Gilgal? And it was a wonderful sermon. And my wife Wilma and I talk about this a lot. She grew up as a child under a preacher who was a fine Old Testament preacher. And she just longs for more good, solid Old Testament preaching today. Uh, Can you give some advice and encouragement to people about Old te- the, the significance of reading the Old Testament, immersing ourselves in the Old Testament, and then for the preachers, the significance of preaching the Old Testament as Christian Scripture. We are not, we act like it, but we should not emulate him. Uh, Marcion, uh, who jettisoned or threw overboard the Old Testament. Well, sure, there are some, uh, some, some will call it texts of terror, but they don't understand how beautiful terror looks in terms of God tri- being uh, triumphant over what is seen as, seen as tragedy but becomes triumph. For instance, I think we read the Bible too quickly. And second of all, I think we need to read the Bible backwards. I think God wrote the Bible this way, backwards. He started with the epilogue and moved to the prologue. He knew the end, according to Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10. He knows the end before the beginning begins. So read the Bible backwards. Revelation 13 and 8. 
And John saw behind the altar a lamb that looked like it had been slain from the foundation of the world. Mm. Acts 2, 23, 24, according to the predetermined counsel of God, Jesus was arrested by the priest, chief priest, scribes, and elders and was crucified, but on the third day he rose again. Now, that's what God predetermined before. So the Calvary precedes the fall of humanity. But when you come forward and just start, and start looking at what God is doing, one, I think it's important that I understand that for every New Testament doctrine, there is an Old Testament picture. For every New Testament doctrine, there's an Old Testament picture. For instance, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. The Old Testament picture in the book of Joshua is this. Guess who's in the church? Rahab, the prostitute. She's also in the book of Hebrews as a, a heroine of faith. She's in James. She's justified by works, etc. So here is a prostitute. Second of all, she's a woman. According to Galatians 3.28, in Christ there's neither male nor female. So now you've got men, women, That's the, they, they're not distinguished by their gender. Not only that, but the Gibeonites, they survive the 70-year captivity in Babylon, and of course they are Hivites, and they picture what the church is going to be in Revelation 5, 9, 79. People from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue will be part of that ecclesiology, their liturgy. I just think that Rahab, once she got converted, did not go back to the oldest institution in the world, prostitution, her life's changed. Plus, she's a part of the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab marries Solomon, and uh, then they have a son by the name of Boaz, and Boaz has a son by the name of Obed, and Obed has a son by the name of Jesse, and Jesse has a son by the name of David, and through David comes Jesus Christ. I just see in the Old Testament just a richness of whatever pneumatology. Let me just take one more. Pneumatology. Hmm. The doctrine of the Spirit. Now we know that in the Old Testament, the Spirit rested upon people. In the New Testament, the Spirit uh, resides within us, within us permanently. But Numbers 27 and 18 says that the Spirit, that Joshua was filled with the Spirit. You translate that, transfer that to Jesus, and he is conceived by the Spirit, and the Spirit of God is on him, and he is the spirit personified so that the Old Testament Joshua has a spirit on him. The New Testament jo uh, Joshua, who is Jesus, has a spirit within him and without measure. And it is a spirit who invites people to come. The, the church and the bride, the spirit and the bride say, come. So I just, I mean, I see these New Testament doctrines. Mm, having their birth in the Old Testament as a picture. I must be able to picture mm, what I'm postulating or what I am announcing in the New Testament by doctrine. What does ecclesiology look like? What does pneumatology look like? What does the Imago Dei look like? Go back to the Old Testament and you find a picture. Those are great 
uh, pieces of advice for all preachers and Bible teachers. Yeah. Help people to picture the exactly, truth. Exactly, Dean. Exactly. So um, I know a lot of students at Beeson have had assignments in your classes to yes. preach from the book of Joshua. And now we have a whole book of advice from you about preaching from Joshua. What do you do with the students? Do you give them a, a method for preaching Joshua? What do, you, what do you say to preachers about how to handle this book of the Bible? Well, um, I have what I call a Christocentric method. I have borrowed, uh, I have um, uh, reconstructed um, from notable and credible sources like Sidney Gradanus and Brian Chappell uh, and my own experience uh, in terms of preaching it. I've gathered things from my pastors, my reading, etc. So I will, I will say to them, number one, look at the book of Joshua through the uh, lens of the whole counsel of God, okay? And for me, the whole counsel of God is that broad and overarching concept that unites and ties together every passage of Scripture so that it relates to the overall plan and comprehensive purpose of God revealed in the Scriptures by the Holy Spirit in order to magnify Jesus Christ. So inter-Trinitarian presence is important. What is God as Father doing? What is the role of the Son? Um, and where is the Holy Spirit? So that we don't trichotomize the Trinity, but there are traits and there are characteristics and there are attributes of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit that are present in the book of Joshua. Look for that so that you are preaching the whole counsel of God See that God has a purpose in the book of Joshua. If God, if, if God permits something, and there are things that God permits, he has a purpose to promote. The purpose must always be inextricably uh, related to the permission. God is always faithful. He's not capricious so that he does things because he just has a certain feeling or he's in a certain mood. It's always tied to his purpose, which is revealed in the redemptive drama throughout Scripture. So that's, that's very, very important rather than just to get topical and try to relate that topic to something that's relating, that's going on in the world. No. What is God's divine purpose? And how is that purpose not only seen in a miniaturized way in the book of Joshua, but macro, in a macro way uh, throughout Scripture? How does this fit God's divine, God's divine purpose? You talk about preaching the whole counsel of God in the context of a pastoral ministry. It seems to me that the book of Joshua is a kind of a scary one for some preachers when it comes to preaching it comprehensively, yeah. preaching all of the book of Joshua. Because there's these beloved parts of the book of Joshua, chapter 1, where the Lord's getting Joshua ready to take over for Moses and it's strengthening him, encouraging him. Chapters 3 and 4, when the Lord's guiding the people across the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land. Yes, sir. We love to focus on we those for lots of good reasons. We do. It's harder to preach Joshua when Joshua is defeating the Canaanites and there's a lot of military conflict and bloodshed. How do you think we're supposed to see Joshua whole 
And is there some encouragement for preachers who'd like to just stop with the first part and not get into some of the rest <laughs> of the, the book of Joshua? Yeah, that's, um, these are difficult texts only if they are unrelated to God's purpose. For instance, in Genesis 15, 16, God reveals about 500 years before the, the time of Moses and Joshua, um, in fact, even more than that, God says to, to Abram before, he is, um, before his covenantal name, uh, you are going to go into uh, the land of Egypt, is what he was saying, for 40 years. Why? Because the cup of the Amorites in the land of Canaan is not full yet. The iniquity is not full. I'm giving them 400 years. They're living in the land and they're doing detestable things. Mm. God gives them 40 years. They're still doing it. God has promised Abraham it's going to be your land. When they go to Canaan, they evict all of these ites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, so forth and so on. They evict them from the land why is this detestable? God has given them 400 years. God has been patient, etc. Now you say, that's shocking that all of the people in Jericho are killed. Okay, I, I understand. And therefore, it's, it's, for me, it is not that God is omnipotent, but he's not omnicompassionate. He's both. I compare that you say that's shocking. Whatever God's, uh, whatever is God's, whatever God permits, God also has a purpose. What is his divine purpose? Not only the land belonging to Canaan, but Christ his son has to be born there in Bethlehem of Judea, Micah 5.2. Now, I move away from this because, and move to the New Testament, because the Bible is profitable, but there's some places in which it is not palatable. It doesn't taste good until you start looking at the whole picture. You think that the crushing and the destroying of these pagans because God had given them 400 years and they had not repented and they continued in their detestable behavior, you move the Jesus. Isaiah 53 and 10. It pleased the Lord to crush him as a purpose. And then you move on and you hear this statement in Romans 8:32. God spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all. Shall he not freely with him give us all things? And you keep working through the innocent, perfect Lamb of God, God who became what he was not human and yet remained who he is, God. He took our sin upon himself and by vicarious substitutionary atonement, he switched places with us so that Romans 6.23 has to be seen as a redemptive reversal the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. He got the wages that we deserve. We got the eternal life that he brought. Mm. 
so that we are saved. So when I look through uh, the lens of that and I see, my goodness, here were pagans who would not repent, who would not turn to God, etc. And every person has to uh, bear the consequence of their own sin. But we also would be destroyed had it not been for the fact that we have turned to God and God has saved us by his grace, but at the same, uh, at the expense of Christ who took our sin upon himself. That's a wonderful gospel that you preach from the book of Joshua. Listeners, let me say the title of this book again, Exalting Jesus in Joshua. It's part of the Christ-Centered Preaching Exposition Commentary Series. We encourage you to read it and be encouraged as I have been. I have read it to great personal benefit. Dr. Smith, our time is drawing nigh. And as you know, we always like to end these uh, podcast episodes by asking guests what the Lord's teaching you these days, whether it's from the book of Joshua or from something else. What's he doing in your life and teaching you even after you've been walking with him all these many years? Dean Swinney, I find myself um, where Ezekiel was. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out into an open valley, placed me down there. And I saw that what he had called me to do was humanly impossible. Son of man, Robert, can these bones live? And my only response is, Lord, only you know. And then he caused the four winds from the north, south, east, and west, the Ruach, the spirit, to blow into the situation that I'm dealing with. And through an act of divine human instrumentality, the divine bringing in the wind, and the human by preaching the word of God, God brings about a, a resurrection, and he does something that is humanly impossible to do. So that's where I find myself. He keeps teaching me. It's a two-hand activity. It's your hand, hmm? but it's my hand on top of your hand, enabling you to do. So when I'm faced, and I am, I know I can't do the work at Beeson Divinity School. I know I can't do the work wherever God sends me. But if I will continue to recognize that his hand is on my hand and given me the ability to do what I know I can't do apart from him, then I get some hope. And I know that with God, all things are possible. Amen. You have been listening to Dr. Robert Smith, Jr. He is the Charles T. Carter Baptist Chair of Divinity here at Beeson, teaches preaching, writes about preaching, just finished a book on Joshua that is wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Smith, for all your many years of ministry here at Beeson and for writing this book as well. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Dean. I appreciate the opportunity. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Please pick up a copy of this book. More importantly, immerse yourself in the Word of God. Uh, please pray for us. We're praying for you. We love you. And we say goodbye for now. been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. 
please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.